0: O God, most high and glorious, who planned to bring salvation through Christ to unworthy sinners like us, through him you have united and equipped people from diverse backgrounds to carry out your purpose. We marvel, Father, that you use the imperfect church as a means, an instrument to accomplish your good and perfect will. We know that, Lord, you are almighty. You don't need our help. Yet, we praise you for displaying your power through feeble people. Our finite and faulty minds struggle to comprehend your infinite greatness. It's true, your thoughts are not our thoughts, and your ways are not our ways. So certainly, we need your help. We need your help to know you. We need your help, Father, to honor, to serve you. We praise you for graciously revealing yourself to us in your word and for sending your Holy Spirit to empower us to understand with greater clarity your steadfast love. You have told us through your word that blessed are those who seek you with their whole heart. Father, help us. To do this today, we want our minds to be filled with more of your word and less of the world. That our minds would more closely reflect yours. That we might not sin against you. Oh, God, we want our lives to reflect our new identity in Christ. We want our lips to be a beacon of grace to others. We want to use our words to encourage and to build up others. We want to use our voices to worship and praise your great name. We want to use our words to bless and to speak the truth. We confess, Lord, that this week some of us have used our lips to lie, to gossip, to slander. Some of us have used your great name in vain. We may have used your words to communicate wrath and bitterness. Some of us used our words for filthiness, or foolish talk, or crude joking. We acknowledge that these grievous sins do not reflect the life that you have placed in us in Christ. Please forgive us. Cleanse us. Purge our thoughts and our hearts. Help us to put these sins far from us. Lord, transform us by renewing our minds. We don't want to use our lips in the same way we did before we became followers of Christ. We want our speech to be instruments of righteousness for your glory. Now, God, we pray that our church might be marked by love, that every Christian here might use their speech in ways that bring glory to you, advance your kingdom. We would pray that we might be united. Brought together through grace. To put bitter jealousy and selfish ambition far from us. Make this so. We pray. Have mercy on us. Forgive any trace of pride within us. Lord remove any hypocrisy, or arrogance, set us free from temptation. Temptation that leads us to act as the world acts, to fight as the world fights, or hate as the world hates. May we not revile others, even when they revile us. But let us pray for those who count us as their enemies. Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Heal our land, strengthen your church, empower your preachers, comfort the downcast, convict the wayward, promote the cause of righteousness, Lord, prevent the spread of evil. Protect those who cannot protect themselves. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Ephesians 1, what an incredible passage of Scripture. It's a phenomenal prayer, song even of praise. Last week we found out that these verses, particularly verses 3 through 14, fulfills the covenant of redemption where the Trinity in Ages past, eternity past, agreed together to reconcile fallen creation. In these verses, we see broken down for us, verses 3 through 6, the Father electing, predestining, adopting. Verses 7 through 12, we see the Son, through His blood, redeeming, removing or forgiving our trespasses. According to his immeasurable grace, we see him revealing the mystery of his will. In verses 13 and 14, we see the Spirit applying the work accomplished by the Son through proclamation, effectually calling, regenerating, justifying, glorifying, and sealing the elect. It's one long sentence. Remove the periods at the end of verses 6 and 12, and you get the feel of what it would read like as one long sentence. In the beloved, in whom we have redemption. And again at the end of verse 12, praise of His glory, in whom you also. It's such a rich text. We've divided it over several weeks now, and we could do so again and again, but At its core, it's about redemption. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit planned from eternity past, prepared and executed redemption for fallen creation. Do you ever grow tired of the gospel? you grow tired of hearing about the gospel? It's a trick question. Does a first-time parent grow tired of admiring their newborn baby? Does a grandparent grow bored with the grandchildren? Sometimes it may be a cute puppy or a new pet in the household. Could be the new car you're driving or that huge fish that you caught on vacation this summer. Maybe it's a recent trip that you took. Or that elusive hole-in-one that you stumbled into on the golf course could be that your favorite team won yesterday, a big game, or even a championship. All of us are eager to talk about things that we get excited about. We never get weary of talking about them, even to other people's boredom, right? How should we feel about the gospel? How should we feel about the gospel? Do you believe it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? I know that's the correct answer, right? Paul never grew tired of talking about the gospel. I can't imagine being one of those Roman soldiers that were chained to him day after day for eight hour shifts or longer. Can you imagine how many times Paul walked through the gospel with those people? He never grew tired of it. He's writing to these Ephesians, people who were near and dear to his heart. And he once again is rehearsing the glories of this gospel, reminding them, even though they are a minority, even though they're living in an oppressed culture, lifting their eyes upward, their hearts being drawn upward to focus upon the God of their redemption Verses 11 through 14 in this section that George just read raise four important subjects for us to explore this morning. I'll give them to you briefly, four words succinctly. Sovereignty, precision, means, and glory. Sovereignty, precision, means, and glory. There's your roadmap for this morning. So let's begin by thinking about God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Queen Elizabeth died this week. She was quite an extraordinary person. She assumed the throne in England at the age of 26 in 1952. For 70 years, she was the head of state. She was the face of Britain. Only Louis XIV reigned as a monarch longer than Queen Elizabeth. He reigned 72 years. She's been described as a woman of faith, even a Christian, a follower of Christ. You know, kings and queens are most unfamiliar to us except for what we read in books or see in the movies. It's not something that we are really into. Oh, we like the pomp and the circumstance. We like to see the royal weddings and uh, the things that they do, read about them in the newspaper and all these uh, fantastic things that maybe they're doing. But even Britain's monarchy, as an example, has limitations. The parliament actually governs the country. The monarchy just is the faith, face of the country. The authority and control that go with a monarch's position. Is what makes us most uncomfortable. We like all the trappings. We like, we like the fairy tale stuff. But when you get right down to it, a king, a monarch, has absolute authority and control. That's what makes us squirm just a bit. Because we want to be autonomous. We want to rule ourselves. Yet scripture is very clear that God is Sovereign. He is sovereign, not for 40 years or 70 years, but for all of eternity. He's all-powerful, has all-dominion. In Moses' final sermon to the Israelites, before he departed from them, Deuteronomy four thirty nine, he says, "'Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord, Yahweh, is God in heaven above and on earth beneath.'" And there is no other. In First Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. Paul, when he arrived in Athens, spoke to the Athenians in this way. He said, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Romans eleven thirty six. 36, very succinctly he says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things. God sovereignly reigns and rules over all things. It doesn't matter how big or how small they may be. It doesn't matter what you see or you don't see. The truth of the matter is that God sits on the throne and He is actively working in His creation. He knows the number of hairs on your head, He knows when a bird falls to the ground dead, He knows when a blade of grass dies. He orchestrates all things according to His purpose. According to His purpose. He says, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. The Holman translation of the Bible portrays this as, we are God's inheritance. I don't think, while that is true, we are God's inheritance, I don't think that's what Paul meant When he wrote this text. My translation says in him we have obtained an inheritance. I think that is the right rendering. Because verse 14 says our inheritance until we obtain possession of it. He's talking about that which is pledged to us. That which is ours by right in Christ. In him. Having been predestined. God elects individuals by name and predestines them for his purposes. He sets boundaries. He fixes our future to be with him forever in glory. God sovereignly reigns in every way you can imagine. Nothing. There is not one rogue Adam in all of creation that doesn't have to answer to God, He has never saved anyone that didn't want to be saved, and he has never not saved anyone who wanted to be saved. Paul was a raving persecutor of the church. Paul thought he was serving God, but in reality he was serving himself, his own desires, his own preferences. He was a rebel against Christ. And on the road to Damascus, God changed Paul's wants. You remember the encounter? He knocked him from his horse. Paul is sitting there. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? (laughs) Question of the year, right? Who are you, Lord? I didn't see that one coming. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then Ananias, speaking into his life, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And he immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. Immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Now, Paul didn't go kicking and screaming. God changed the desires of Paul's heart and brought him to himself and used him. All of us come into this world as rebels against God, against his throne. No one wants to follow God. No one. No one wants to have God on the throne of their lives. Only the pomp and circumstance, only when it's convenient, only when it serves us do we want Him on that throne. In our own devices, in our own desires, we want to be on that throne. In our fallen condition, we will never repent of sin. We'll never turn to God. It's God working in our heart that changes our hearts, takes our hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh, giving us a desire for Him, wanting Him on the throne of our lives, just like He did with Paul. We have obtained an inheritance. What is this inheritance? Some immediately think it means heaven, and it certainly doesn't not mean that. Sure, it includes heaven, but there's so much more there. That would be a simplistic answer, would it not? 1 Peter 1, 4 helps us to unpack this inheritance a bit. It says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What does he say? He says our inheritance in Christ is imperishable. It's not subject to corruption or decay. Everything in this world is decaying. Everything in this world is deteriorating. Matthew 6, 19 through 20 says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 1 Peter 1.23 says, We were not redeemed with perishable seed, but we were born of imperishable seed. Also, this passage in Peter tells us that our inheritance in Christ is unspoiled. What we have in Christ is free from anything that would deform, debase, or degrade it. Everything in this world is flawed. Even those things that appear to be Beautiful. Even those things that we may look at and say, it's perfect. That perfect blossom. And yet, upon upon close examination, you will find the imperfections. But Christ is truly perfect. Hebrews says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So too is our inheritance in Him. Revelation says nothing unclean will ever enter heaven. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Our inheritance is unspoiled. Our inheritance is unfading. Our inheritance in Christ is an enduring possession. It never loses its value. It never diminishes in any degree. Colors always fade. Pages grow brittle, metals tarnish, excitement wanes, but not so with Christ. He says, behold, I'm making all things new, perpetually new. Our inheritance in Christ is also reserved. It is kept in heaven for us. We, like Abraham, are looking for a special city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Reiterating what Paul says right here, that the Holy Spirit seals us until we acquire possession of this inheritance. Being in God's presence is our inheritance. Not just heaven, but heaven is being in God's presence. Knowing and enjoying His love forever is our inheritance. John 14, 21, Jesus said, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We are part of the family of God. One of his many sons. We will know perfect unity, maturity, unending joy. And peace, everything God is doing, we have a part in it. Now we could discuss this subject for days and weeks on end, but it's not possible to exhaust the idea of God's sovereignty of all that he is doing, and ensuring that it's going to come about just as He planned from eternity past. But let's think for just a moment as Paul directs our attention to God's precision. We know Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, For everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Everything has a place in God's purpose and God's plan. A particular order to everything. Verse 11 says, We have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12 says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ... And verse 13 says, in him you also when you heard. The nuance of these verses is pretty clear. There is a distinction. Chapter 2 helps us out. What's he talking about? We who were the first to hope in Christ. And you also, when you heard the word of truth, have come to Christ. What's he talking about? Well, chapter 2, he talks about this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. The separation between these two groups of people. We know that the gospel, first of all, came to this people that God had chosen for himself. A person, Abraham, and all of his descendants, a nation through whom he blessed. He brought the gospel through them to bless all of the world. It was through Abraham that Christ would be born into this world. Christ's work, though, has torn down this dividing wall and killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile. Here, Paul is pointing to the Jews who first hoped in Christ. I think it probably has a double meaning here. He's talking about the Jews, the nation through whom God has sent the gospel promise, and also those like Paul himself who heard and received the gospel first and are now being sent out to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Romans 9, 8, 9, 6, and 8 encourages us not to get lost in the particular people groups. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise. The children of promise seems to be very near to Paul's heart as he's writing to the Ephesians, encouraging them as Gentiles to understand that it's the same gospel, it's the same hope, the same promise That has come to you that first came to these people God called out to use. To people like myself, he's saying, it's the same gospel. God delivered this redemptive gospel first to them and now to you. God's elect was always intended to include many people, many nations, many tribes, many tongues. Precision, at the right time, in the right way, in the right place, God is always orchestrating these events, bringing things to pass according to his purpose and plan, which is always perfect. But not only is his plan one of great precision, it is carried out by incredible means. Notice God's means. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You also, the Ephesians, the Gentiles, God chose them individually, by name, before creation. How did it happen? Why didn't God just, why didn't he just set up his kingdom? Why did he go through all of these processes? We need to remind ourselves over and over and over. God ordains the purpose, but he also ordains the means to accomplish this purpose. He doesn't have to explain to us why he did it this way. We rest in the fact that he did it this way. It's in keeping with his plans, his purposes, which are always right. Creation was spoken into existence. The fall occurred. Christ came, suffered, died, resurrected, ascended. The good news is proclaimed by redeemed people. Flawed, imperfect people. God could have sent legions of angels But he decided to use those who were the object of his redemption. The elect are effectually called and regeneration occurs. The regenerate believe the gospel and repent of sin. And they are justified and glorified. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He planned the destination and the means for achieving it. Several years ago when our children were smaller. Smaller younger we were living out in the midwest and we decided to take a vacation and take advantage of being in that location so we uh i planned a vacation a driving vacation our children had gotten large enough big enough mature enough we thought they could stand being in the car together for a long period of time and for the most part it worked for that vacation, we picked out some places we wanted to visit. We went to Carlsbad Caverns. We went to uh, White Sands National Park. We went to the Painted Desert. We went to the Grand Canyon. We went to uh, Meso Verde National, or State Park. We went to lots of places, Silverton, Colorado. We saw lots of interesting things. The destination was sit down and laid out. And that's what the girls pretty much had their focus on was the destination. But dad not only planned the destination, but he planned the means to get there. The car had to be serviced and prepared. Gas had to be purchased. Restaurants had to be paid. Hotels had to be reserved and paid. All of those things had to be taken care of so that the trip would still function the way it was supposed to function, and we would arrive at our destinations. God has determined the destination for his elect, and he has determined the means for getting there. All that we see unfolding in his gospel is God's means for accomplishing his purpose, his destination for his people. The work of Christ is the means. The use of humans to proclaim the gospel is the means. The truth of the gospel is made known. God determines through the work of His Spirit to effectually call the elect to Himself and He regenerates. He enables them to believe, to repent. He gives justification, glorification. Nothing is left to chance. This hope began in the aftermath of the fall at Eden and continued through Abraham and his descendants and those who were the first to believe to hope in Christ. He has continued even to the Gentiles, the Ephesians, even to you here today. His means, he seals them with the Holy Spirit, a seal, an identifying mark that's put upon a letter or contract. That proves, gives evidence that it came from the person it claims to have come from. It identifies, it protects. And by giving us the spirit, God seals or stamps us as his own. This happens upon our regeneration. The spirit continues to testify and authenticate his relationship by conforming us to Christ's image. Day by day, moment by moment, week by week, year by year. Romans 8, 15 and 16, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. He seals us with his spirit. It is important that we understand what is at stake in all of this. And Paul makes it clear, not once, not twice, but three times. He speaks to God's glory. This long sentence begins in verse 3 with, Blessed be the God, or praise be to God and Father. It shows the fulfillment of His covenant of redemption. As I said earlier, verses 3 through 6 focus on the Father, 7 through 12 on the Son, 13 and 14 on the Holy Spirit, each having a role in this incredible redemptive work reconciling a broken creation. Now, here's what I want you to see. At the close of each of these sections, the primary objective is announced. Verse 6. God does this. God the Father does this to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12. The Son redeems, brings about forgiveness according to the immeasurable grace that He has. Why? To the praise of His glory. Verse 14. The Spirit seals. The Spirit works in us, carrying out the truth of the gospel. Why? To the praise of His glory. What does this repeating refrain mean? All of these spiritual blessings from God to his elect, to us as his people, they are for the praise of God's glory. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, he predetermined, he elected, he called, he justified, he glorified, he sealed in order to display his glory. It's always for His glory. This text shines light on God's reputation, power, and dominion. In Isaiah 6, we were speaking Wednesday night in our Bible study about Isaiah 6. In that scene, you may remember Isaiah sees the Lord exalted before him in the year that Uzziah died. And he uses this phrase. He says, the train of his robe filled the temple. The robe, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now we get in our minds, we think of church. We think of a temple. We think of a small building. And and this monarch sitting on this throne, this king with this robe that is filling the temple. But it's much more than that. A few years ago, I did a little study on this, and you know the significance behind a monarch's train, the train. You know a bride's train, right, that follows along behind her. Well, a monarch's train, the significance is it's an accumulation of his victories, Every time he defeats another kingdom, another kingdom, he goes and cuts off part of that king's train and sows it onto his train. So the bigger the longer his train, the more victories he has, the greater, grander his power and his dominion. The Lord's glory filled the temple. And this picture that Isaiah is seeing is not just a temple as in a building like we're in today. It's the temple is a picture of all creation, all that is, all that ever will be. God's glory is so vast, so great, so grand, so all-consuming, all-conquering over everything, over every pretender or wannabe. It fills all creation there's no space left for anything else. There's no space needed for anything else. His glory, His power, His authority fills all and is over all. Now, these subjects, the terms, the subjects that are covered in these verses are difficult for us. Why? Well, I, it's very simple, isn't it? Can we just be honest with each other today? It's problematic for us because we want the glory right now if you don't believe that you're being dishonest with yourself we want the glory we want the light to shine on us just a little bit can i just get close enough to the edge of the spotlight where some of it falls on me hey i did i did some too i i helped But see, if you have any portion, if you have any part, 1%, .1 1.1% part in your redemption, then it's not grace. It's not grace. If you did anything, one simple act that you consider to be righteous apart from God, it's not grace any longer. Nathan referenced the formula in Bible study this morning. If Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you add anything, one sliver of anything to Jesus, it nullifies all of it. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. So I ask you this morning, how does your life honor and glorify God? You're here this morning and you say, well, you know, I I get this. The truth is clear. I, I want to be, to live, to exist for God's glory. How does your life honor and glorify God? Well, you begin simply by asking, have you believed the gospel? Have you believed that you need the gospel? Do you believe that it's simply enough to be a member of a church, that you've been raised in church and your parents were churchgoers and your grandparents were churchgoers, and is that enough? Have you believed the gospel? Have you come to the realization that you know that you're you're a sinner? that you're a rebel, that you've rejected God on that throne and that without Christ's atoning work for you, you you're condemned. Have you repented of your sin and turned to him for forgiveness? If not, you may even now. Has God given you that desire? Then obey him. Call out to him. Say, Lord, I I embrace the gospel. I believe it's true. I believe I need the gospel. I need a redeemer. I want to be. I desire to be part of your elect. In him, how do you display his glory? How are you displaying his glory? Are you obeying him? Are you demonstrating love for him? Are your lives revealing that you value him above everything else? Are you treating him as king? Truly, truly king? Are you living by faith in his truth? even when you can't understand it, even when it's difficult to believe and trust. How about here at Milton Community Church? Man, we're just getting started, and what a great start it's been. Just getting started. If you can't get excited about the future of this church and this community, you really should get your vital statistics checked out. How do we display God's glory here? How are we going to display God's glory? Is it on our radar? Is it what we aspire to? Is it what we want? I would say if it's not, if it's not central, if it's not a priority, then you need to evaluate. We should be evaluating. Our church seeks to express our sincere love for God in everything, not just on Sunday morning, but next Saturday morning when Craig and Dave gather you out there and say, all right, start lugging these these pieces of sod over there and putting them on the ground. Green side up, up, not dirt side up, right? (laughs) Even I know that. Thank you, Charles, for pointing that out. (laughs) Did I tell you I was going to be sick next Saturday? But even as we do any of these tasks that we might think, you know, discard them. This is not a spiritual task. This is a, this is a practical task. This is something that it doesn't really matter how I do it. Wrong. Wrong. Everything you do, all that you say, every, your attitude needs to continually be for the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glory. You never know who's watching and observing and listening every conversation as we obey him as we love one another as we work for unity amid diversity we exalt him as we proclaim the gospel with faithfulness and with passion we do it for his glory not to convince people to be saved that's not our job Our job is to make the case that the gospel is truth and worthy of belief, and it will change your life, but God does the convincing. Our job is to do it for the praise of his glory. If I can convince you, if I can convince you, you know what the temptation is? I helped, didn't I? Well, what would have happened if I didn't show up and tell you how to get there? Listen, got word for you. He sends somebody else. He's given you tasks. We do it because we want to be obedient to him. We want to obey him because he's our king, our benevolent and loving and grand king that's worthy of all worship and obedience. He does all the regenerating we get the privilege of participating with him as we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together to worship as we sharpen one another in faith we seek to exalt him in all that we do and we guard and fight against existing to serve ourselves we must guard and fight against serving our own preferences our own desires Against the sneaky, subtle desire to climb up on the throne and sit there ourselves. We fight to exist for God's glory and enjoy Him forever. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you and bless you today that you are a great king. Lord, when we get the full view of who you are, when we are willing, Lord, to put the lies aside and focus on the truth, we recognize that there are no, there are no legitimate competitors. What a grand and glorious and great king you are. It's easy to desire and long for you to be praised and honored and glorified. Only you are deserving. Thank you for the work that you've done in each of our lives. Some, maybe it's been years ago. Some, it's been weeks or months ago. Some, maybe just hours ago. Some, you may be working on even as we speak. God, we are grateful. We are humbled that you are proactive, working on our behalf, drawing your people to yourself, giving us an inheritance in Christ That will endure for all eternity. I pray this morning. That the scales indeed might fall from our eyes. And that we might recognize. This glorious. This glorious thing. Your redemption. Our reconciliation. Our blessing. Through you that endures forever. Have your way in us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.